Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on June 27th, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning, found in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the household. This is the third sermon in that series. Next week, Matt will be preaching on the man's role in the household. And this morning, we'll return our attention to Titus chapter 2. I'll begin reading here in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider what your word says about submission, we ask that you would rehabilitate our view of submission in accordance to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about the character of a godly woman, focusing our attention on Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And we looked at many different things, and we saw in verse 5 that older women are to teach younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. And last week, we explored what that means. We defined that and tried to work out what that means, pointing out several things. And if you want to look at what we pointed out, you can return to last week's sermon, but we pointed out, for example, that this is not calling on women to be a doormat. It's not calling on men to be dictators. The idea is that there are roles in the household. There are roles for the man, the husband. There are roles for the wife. There's roles for the children. And these roles are fulfilled in harmony. And so, husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Wives, Submit to your own husbands. And the harmony of these roles resembles a dance more than a competition. It isn't about one spouse winning or losing. It's about moving rhythmically in a pattern of steps set to the Lord's music. And so when the man leads the woman during a dance, that enhances the role of the woman in the dance even as she is submitting to the leadership of the man. And so submission isn't about letting the man win. It's about pointing others to the music of God. The idea of women submitting to their own husbands, as Titus says here in, or as Paul says here in Titus 2, verse 5, that idea is so unpopular today that if you go out into the world with these words on your lips, You will be shunned, you will be insulted, and you will be called oppressive. And there are at least two reasons the world is in open revolt against these words. One reason is because the world doesn't properly understand what this means, and that's that's because they come to these words with the full assumptions of feminism rather than the full assumptions of Scripture. And we're going to talk more about that in a bit. But another reason 
that the world is in open revolt against these words is because egalitarianism is the fervent religious belief of liberal democracy, and it's the fervent belief of most in our day. So then what is egalitarianism? Well, as I said, egalitarianism is the atmosphere in which modern culture lives and moves and has its being. Egalitarianism allows for no differences. Egalitarianism says the world is flat. The world is flat and we're all equal. We're all the same. So there's none superior to another and all deserve the same outcomes. And egalitarianism says that rights and outcomes are the same thing. Egalitarianism is about pretending that everyone is the same. Egalitarianism is about, as C.S. Lewis says, making all the cornstalks the same height. Yet the Christian idea of equality understands that true equality doesn't mean the same. And so before the modern person can appreciate submission and can appreciate what Scripture says on the subject, they have to see that God's world is hierarchical, not egalitarian. God's world is hierarchical, which means God's world is not flat. God's world is not the same. God made the world with a hierarchical structure. And for a Christian, this should not be controversial. If he hadn't made it this way, the meaning of God, the meaning of I am, the meaning of in the beginning would be absurd. How can you have a God if the world is the same? How can you have someone say, I am, I am the great I am? How can you have it said that in the beginning God, that is before the world was made, there was God? None of that makes sense if the world is egalitarian. This hierarchical shape means frustration for creatures building towers into the sky. Brick upon brick of resistance in recognizing and often resenting their subordinate place in the hierarchy. Parent above child. Government above citizen. Teacher above student. Potter above clay. God above man. By grace, the church is the body and Christ is the head which is to say that when God created volitional creatures, when God made human beings in His image with volitional ability, with the ability to act on our will, with the ability to do whatever we find in our heart to do, when God made creatures in His image with a moral sense, when God made creatures in His image with the ability to understand right and wrong, that is hierarchy clarified, not flattened, because those creatures with that moral sense and with that reasoning ability and with the volitional capacity, they are able to recognize that God is on top of the hierarchy, not man. Now, we have to make a clarification. There is, of course, a sense in which human beings are equal. Galatians 3.28 speaks of it, when Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And so there is a sense in which we are all equal. Before God, we are all equal. And it doesn't matter if you're male or female, slave or free. Before God, we're all equal. And what that means, if you really nail down what that's talking about, human beings of all stripes are equally guilty before a holy God. All human beings are equally deserving of eternal punishment before a holy God. And in Christ, that is through faith in Christ as the substitute for your sins, we all stand before God equally justified. And in this matter, God does not show partiality. But Galatians 3.28 is talking about divine relations, the relation between God and man. It's not talking about societal relations. It's not talking about the relations between man and man. Galatians 3.28 is talking about how people are viewed in relation to God. And yet on the ground, on the earth, some, in God's wisdom, are lifted up and some are put down. And the modern person hears that and they say, how can you talk like that? Haven't you read the Declaration of Independence? How can you talk like that? Well, the reason I can talk like that is because I'm just quoting Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So then what is hierarchy? Well, the idea of hierarchy is nothing more than that duties abound in one direction or another. We are to obey our superiors. Our superiors are to have authority over us. Now, the world calls that inequality and discrimination. Christians call that harmony. So consider an example of how hierarchy leads to harmony rather than tyranny. Consider, for example, that some work is necessarily subordinate to other work. A bricklayer serves the greater work of the architect. But the architect serves the greater work of the city planners. And the city planners serve the greater work of the politicians. Some work is necessarily subordinate to other work. So why is there subordination? In other words, in what sense are some subordinate? Well, it's not that the bricklayer is inferior to the politician. Please keep your jokes in your pocket here. Subordination doesn't necessarily mean inferiority. Some works are subordinate to others, which doesn't mean that the people who perform those subordinate works are inferior. Rather, it has to do with means and ends. And the ends are more important than the means. Thus, the bricklayer is the means and the building is the end. But then the building becomes the means and the city becomes the end. That's how hierarchy works. And so the point is that some work is hierarchical. Some work is necessarily subordinate to others and that creates harmony not tyranny. Consider another example. Consider the example of the work of redemption accomplished by God. So if we're going to talk about redemption accomplished by God, we have to start by thinking, okay, well, who is God? And the Bible answers that question by saying God is Father, Son, and Spirit. 
You want to know who God is? God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Christians call this the Trinity. And the formulation we've used for thousands of years is God is three in one and one in three. Christians also admit that this is complex. But just because it's complex doesn't mean we can't explain it to the degree that scriptures explained it to us. And so when we try to understand God, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. God is three in one, He's one in three, and this is complex. And there are two questions that will help you best understand what Scripture teaches on the doctrine of the Trinity. The first question is, in what sense is God one? And then the second question is, in what sense is God three? So let's think about this. Let's think about God. God is one in three, three in what? Three in one. So in what sense is God one? And we might go to a passage like John chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And we read that and we think, huh, that's not an ordinary way of talking for a man. What does he mean, I and the Father are one? And then we might zoom out a little and see that in John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus explains that they are one in their works. And then we might see in John chapter 10, verse 28, how Jesus explains they are one in their eternal purpose. And then even more than that, once we zoom out and take a broader look at Scripture, we might also see that they are one in divine substance. And so, for example, Mark chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Jesus forgives sins, which only God can do. We see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, which means that God the Son is eternally generated from the divine essence of God the Father. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And that's kind of a technical way of talking in the Old Testament. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, which means not that he was the first created being, but that Jesus stands with the rights of the firstborn, inheriting all that belongs to God the Father. And so Jesus is the Son of God, the firstborn of creation, meaning Jesus is exactly like the Father in His attributes, in His substance, and in His essence. Hebrews 1.3 talks about how God the Son is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. And so when it comes to understanding God, understanding there's Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, one in three, the first theological truth that must be maintained is that Jesus and the Father are one. And if we had time, we could bring in the Holy Spirit and look at those passages that explain that the Holy Spirit is also of the same divine substance as Father and Son. And if you care about technical theological jargon, theologians refer to this as the ontological trinity. Ontology refers to being, and so the being of God or the substance of God is one. Father, Son, and Spirit have the same divine substance, the same divine nature, the same divine essence. In other words, when you look at the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is no distinction between the divine nature of God the Father, the divine nature of God the Son, and the divine nature of God the Spirit. The second question to help us understand the Trinity is, well then in what sense is God three? 
And to answer that question, we might go to a passage like John chapter 14, verse 28, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And we look at that, and we look at that last statement Jesus says. He says, I am going to the Father. And the first thing to discern from that is God the Son is going to be with the Father, which means the person of God the Father and the person of God the Son are distinct. There's no sense in which they become one person. They're always distinct persons. But then, even more difficult to understand is that after that, Jesus says, For the Father is greater than I. And so we read that passage, and we ask, okay, in what sense is the Father greater than the Son? And as we answer that question, we have to remember what we've already done. We've already seen in John chapter 10, verse 30, that Jesus and the Father are one. That is, they share the same divine substance. So then, in what sense is God the Father greater than God the Son? Well, He's not greater in the sense that He's more God than God the Son. He doesn't have a greater divine nature than God the Son. God the Father is greater not in substance, but God the Father is greater in distinction of roles. There is a distinction of roles between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, if we had time to bring that into the discussion. And if you like technical theology, theologians refer to this as the economic trinity. Economy just refers to roles or the ordering of something. And so there is an economic distinction. That is, there is a distinction of roles between Father, Son, and Spirit. Which means simply that between the Father, Son, and Spirit, there is an ordering of activities as they carry out God's plans. And we see this all throughout Scripture. For example, in creation and in redemption, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit carry out different roles. And so in those activities, we would say there is an economic distinction. There is a distinction of roles among the Godhead. And so, for example, consider Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And as I read this, I want you to listen for the specific role of God the Father. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God, the Father, has sent the Spirit of His sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So did you hear it? What is the role, what is the distinct role of God the Father? Well, we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that God the Father sent the Son. So the Father's role is to send the Son. And then we saw in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that God the Father sent the Spirit. And so what is the role of God the Father? Well, God is the sender. He's the planner. He's the one who purposes. We see that also fleshed out in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Romans 8, and so on. And so this Galatians 4 passage, speaking of salvation, is affirming the distinct 
roles of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And if you look at it again, you see the distinct role of God the Son. Listen for it. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent forth His Son. Okay? So He sent forth His Son to accomplish what? Born of woman, born under the law. Okay? So that means God the Son is born into human history as a human being. And he's going to live in human history with 24-hour days, with the, the limitations of a biological body, needing water and sleep and so on. And it says, so he's born of woman, born under the law. Okay, so what's God the Son doing here? Why is God the Son taking on human flesh and, and living in these conditions? Verse 5, to redeem, which means purchase. That's the word from the marketplace. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then if you keep going, you see in verse 6 the distinct role of God the Spirit. And because you are sons, God the Father has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there the Spirit is indwelling the believer and applying the act of redemption from God the Son. And so we see here an ordering of activities. There is a distinction of roles between Father, Son, and Spirit. In verse 4, we see the role of Father as that of sending. Verse 5, we see the role of, of Son as redemption. And in verse 6, we see the role of the Spirit as indwelling the believer. And you see these distinctions maintained all throughout Scripture. We could flesh this out more. I'll summarize it for you. But we see the roles of God the Father with words like the good pleasure, which just means the purpose, the eternal purpose of God. The role of God the Father is for knowledge and election. The role of God the Son is reconciliation and redemption and mediatorship. And the role of God the Spirit is regeneration, sanctification, and communion. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is that there is a distinction of roles between Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the playing out of those distinctions, God the Son willingly submits himself to the plan of God the Father. A planned purpose before the world began, and thus Jesus confesses in John chapter 14, verse 28, the Father is greater than I. This is the main thing I want you to see this morning. You need to see that God the Son voluntarily submitted himself to the plan of God the Father to come to earth and to suffer on behalf of God their people. And I want you to see what this means about the Bible's teaching about submission. Look at what this means about submission. For a slave to submit to his master, as 1 Timothy 6 verses 1 through 2 talks about, is for the slave to be Christ-like for God the Son willingly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. For a child to submit to his parents, like Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2 talks about, is for the child to be Christ-like. For God the Son willingly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. For a citizen to submit to his governing authorities, as Romans 13, verses 1 through 4 talks about, is for the citizen to be Christ-like. For God the Son willingly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. For a student to submit to his teacher, as Matthew 10, 24 talks about, 
is for a student to be Christ-like. For God the Son willingly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. For a church member to submit to the plurality of elders, as Hebrews 13, 17 talks about, is for the church member to be Christ-like. For God the Son willingly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. And for a wife to submit to her own husband, as Titus chapter 2, verse 5 talks about, is for the wife to be Christ-like. For God the Son willingly submitted himself to the plan of God the Father. And so you have to see that all persons living in Christian community are required to submit to proper authorities in their lives. And we see this idea broadly sketched out in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, when it talks about submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And so we read last week in Titus chapter 2, verse 5, we read it again this morning, that older women are to teach younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. And you'd have to have your head in the sand to not realize how controversial those words are in the year 2021. The world hears Paul write, wives, submit to your own husbands. The world hears this and is repulsed because they hear it with the assumptions of a fully developed egalitarianism rather than the assumptions of a fully developed biblical picture, rather than with the assumption of the true nature of things in God's world. And the nature of things in God's world is not hierarchical. Sorry, liberal democracy. It's not hierarchical. I mean, sorry, it's not egalitarian. It is hierarchical. And in the nature of things as God made it, that hierarchy means harmony rather than tyranny. And of course, the world hears this and is repulsed because they hear it apart from the example of God the Son willingly submitting himself to God the Father's eternal plan of salvation. When God the Son submitted to God the Father, did that mean he was of lesser value than God the Father? No. When God the Son submitted to God the Father, did that mean that the Father was more God than God the Son? No. When God the Son submitted to God the Father, did that mean that the Son was inferior in worth or substance to the Father? No. In the act of God the Son submitting to God the Father, they are still one in value. They are still one in divine worth. They are still one in divine substance. Likewise, when a wife submits to her own husband, it's not that the wife is inferior. Because remember, subordination doesn't necessarily mean inferiority. Wives are told, or excuse me, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so that means the husband's role is specifically patterned after Christ, which gives the husband's role special esteem. And when wives are told to be submissive to their own husbands, that too is patterned after Christ, which gives the wife's role special esteem. And so the goal of this sermon is to rehabilitate submission for the modern person, not by appealing to feminism, 
or the assumptions of feminism, but by appealing to Scripture and the God of Scripture. And when you appeal to Scripture, you see, as C.R. Wiley has written, that the role isn't significant because you are. You are significant because your role is. And in God's world, some works are subordinate to other works, which doesn't mean that the people who perform those subordinate works are necessarily inferior. We are all under authority in virtually every aspect of our lives, either as employees, citizens of a nation, or citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And in that way, submission is inescapable. And when it's ordered according to God's plan, submission is beautiful. Because submission is the recognition that there is order to the world and to all human society. Let us close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we confess that we don't know better than You. We confess that in Your world, our greatest good can only occur from conformity to Your ordering of the universe. And so just as God the Son willingly submitted to God the Father to accomplish our salvation, help us to see that submission is not a bad word, but it's something beautiful when done according to your divine headship. We, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed, K-I-R-K dot com. <laughs>